Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. This is episode... 254. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm still Bill Bohr. There we go. As always and ever. Now we're going to go live. We're back. We're back. Yeah, a bit of technical difficulties, but welcome everybody on Friday night. So you are a bachelor this weekend. I am. I am a bachelor functionally. That's right. Your wife is sojourning in the great state of Texas, which I, I was there last week. The stars at night. Shine so bright. Yes, and um, deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah, I've got a busy weekend. I'm doing uh, we're helping organize a small church uh, resourcing conference. We have a good turnout coming, some good seminars. So. These days, it's better to be a small church. I don't know, better is a relative term. I mean, you have different sets of problems. You know, when I was pastor of a large church, there was some real advantages of that and some real disadvantages. But uh, yeah, you know, the trouble of small churches with your burden with you know, the legacy of when you were not a small church, like an older building, uh, you that you know you can change structures. It's it's harder to deal with a building that you may not be able to afford or use anymore. That's that's a challenge. But is, I feel like changing people is harder. Well, cultures because well, if you have enough money to change, the building can do it. Well, I think sometimes programming. Um, again, you know, one of the myths of a program-driven church. You know, I bring a staff in. That is going to make programming, but often staff, a new staff just brings a new set of problems as well, even though they may or may not bring a set of gifts or the gifts you need, the gifts they have. So it's, it's uh, you know, uh, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, uh, when I, at the conference I was at in Texas, they were talking about all the large churches there in the greater Dallas area. And why they have trouble being agents of transformation is they just need to, you know, some of them just need $100,000 a month to make payroll. So, so there's a lot of incentive not to make at least rich people or to make generous people angry. So, but you know, when a small church you make someone upset, then you can decrease <laughs> decrease the the and if ever and ever you know, there's always somebody related to someone in a small church. So each let's just face it, being a pastor, regardless of what size it is, uh, whether it's a traditional church or a uh, storefront church or a cutting edge church, my favorite hateful the, the phrase I hate the most, cutting edge, but. Uh, Nonetheless, it's just each each kind of church has its own challenges, you know, and has its own rewards as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we were talking about, um, the, uh, what we talked about talking about is that in our recent uh, podcast with Matt Milner, we had a lot of ideas. We thought that we could really mine for a whole whole series of talks. And one of them was kind of a throwaway phrase, and I don't remember exactly the context, but I brought up the whole idea of invisible First visible church. And, you know, first of all, is that a useful, is that still a useful way of thinking about things? Um, what's problematic with that division? How is the church both of them or how is the church neither of them? I mean, I think uh, it's, you know, we have a lot of things going on in the church world, whether the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of day of reckonings happening there. Same yeah, thing in, in yeah. the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, uh, the Methodist Church is in the process of debating something that 
could divide. Well, it's going to divide. It's going to cause division one either way it goes. But uh, but they have Michelle, <laughs> the unifier of all, Methodism. All will be well. All will be very well. Michelle, he's a, he's a force to be reckoned with. He is a force. So I want to ask you something. Michelle posted something about the Book of Romans, that it's Paul's theological dissertation. Right. You agree with that or disagree? Eh, it's kind of absurd. All right, all right, mildly <laughs> absurd. My, Michelle, we love you. We just, we just think that's a bit of an overstatement. Bit of an overstatement. Yeah. So, Invisible Church. A friend of the show. Michelle, friend of the friend show. Friend of the show. Friend yeah. of the show. Yeah. So this idea of the verse, the visible or the invisible church. So one, one thing is, we, you know, in terms of, uh, I think it was a discussion about, you know, more sacramental churches. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church. There really isn't a division between the visible and invisible church. Uh, there, there, might, there might be... You know, Augustine or the Augustinian strain might say, okay, we don't really ultimately know who ultimately, you know, only those who persevere will will make it, uh, you know, which is on the, that was a sign that was on the, the door entrance of uh, of Luther's Augustinian monastery. <laughs> <laughs> that, might have, that might have been an indication there was going to be a rough go in there. But, uh, you know, um, and then some of us, you know, we, you know, part of it, it's funny, right after we talked to Matt, we talked to... Uh, our our friend uh, David Fitch and you know you would you, friend of the show friend of the show you would argue that the Anabaptists really sort of the Anabapt or neo Anabaptist tradition probably really wants to claim there's really only a visible church per se the visible church is what matters and that you try to have a true visible church a real church of gathered believers that's certainly the Anabaptist tradition yeah I, I would almost want to say something more like and I think this goes to him who shall not be named. Tim Keller. <laughs> I feel like we've we've gone in. That was our most downloaded podcast. Yeah, is it? Well, it was in the middle of a controversy up there at Princeton. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, Bill and I love controversy as long as we're not in the middle. Exactly. Of it. <laughs> as long as we're not the objects of it. But I think Keller. It's funny because Keller says in Center Church, which he's always trying to do balance to all right. these different tr- traditions. He says though that. The church is an organism and an organization. Yeah. And he said the pastor's job is to just throw themselves to keep the organism alive. Like, uh, because the organization will kind of always be in tension with the organism. It's the only place where, no, we wouldn't have to agree with Keller on that. Right. But I think he's right that if you're Catholic or Orthodox, the organism and the organization are the same thing. Right. If you're Southern Baptist, the organism and the organization are completely different. right? Right. So... If you're not Southern Baptist or Catholic or Orthodox, you're trying to figure out what the hell it means to be in the church. You're in good company. <laughs> yeah, no. I actually, I think kind of, I would almost go, I, I know, the, I appreciate the intent of what Tim Keller is saying there. But I think as a pastor, your job is to help the organization be formed by its identity as the organ. Oh, yeah, as the organism, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think in terms of, because it does matter. And to, also, you can only control, it's so interesting because you can do certain things like God, you know, it's like a vegetable garden. Like you, you can do things that will help the growth that's going on or deter it with like wires and fencing, but you can't make things grow. You just can't, right. You know, there's a certain level at which you, you can inhibit growth or once growth happens, you can help it along, but you can't make the growth. Yeah. It was interesting. One of my Buddhist students who's trained to be a priest asked me the other day, well, how do you get your listeners to do what you're telling them to do. <laughs> I laughed. I said, well, 
Uh, you can't. <laughs> if you figure it out. You can't. Well, but the but I think, for instance, for me, I, I think that it's probably, particularly, you know, if you have a building, if you have, you know, if you have, if two or three of you gather together, you have an organization in some sense. I think how you do your finances, how you approach your property, um, all that really, really, those are great, those are great laboratories to to really model and struggle with being a Christian. To see who you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because for instance, one of the, I think the biggest danger some churches get into is they, you know, let's say when they get to the finances. So they have, they have good, if you're smart, you have good finance people on your finance committee, but there's a temptation to, to there's a temptation to just default when you talk about your finances to stop being Christian about it. Yeah. Or to not think of, um, you know, for instance, we did a um, when we when I one time we had a massive renovation project. It was an old building and it had been took up a city block and it was a historic building and there had been four additions. Of course, none of them ever were made coherent with each other. So we were in this project and we had a discussion about spending a little extra money to be more environmentally conscious, so that it was both not only do we save money. But, you know, we have an obligation to be good stewards of both the money people give us, but also, you know, to try to do something about um, the way we use energy in the building and things like that. So I think there was a great opportunity to not talk about, well, we're saving bucks or let's do the short, easy thing, but we have a responsibility. So for me, that's why this kind of dance between, you know, whether you whether we say visible or invisible or organization and or, organism, I think that's... I like, I'm with you. I'm sometimes there are days I, you know, all right, the organization, I got all these organizational issues. We got to make sure that we, uh, you know, we're compliant with the fire code. We're compliant with our insurance liability, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, there are days that, you know, you just go, Oh, why am I doing this stuff? But then how you do that may be one of the most important ways, uh, you bear Christian witness. Well, this is like the, uh, lectionary podcast we just did with joseph right that god's working in his life when he's like i'm in prison this is a prison but it doesn't have to feel like it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah do we have a who did we have a comment from josh redder said almost like there's a bible verse about god gives the increase (laughs) (laughs) yeah we know or god lets you have a famine you know but yeah you got to be faithful you know i do though think that um, not being uh, b- the belief in an invisible church helps during days when everything around you looks pretty bad. Uh, you know, it's funny. Everybody, I, I saw someone else declare the end of evangelicalism. You know, that seems to be <laughs> that seems to be really in style now, or the end of the church, or you know, this. Yeah, how's the church going to survive the sex scandal? How's it going to survive modernity? All that stuff. But well, look, if the church can survive Donald Trump, it can survive anything. <laughs> <laughs> What's not going to be right? Right. Well, the, one could say the church survived the French Revolution. You know, you can pick up, be on the ground. If the church could survive a um, hundred million people dying in Europe during World War II, I mean, so there's there have been very bad times, and there have been there have been times when the church has come walked away looking very badly. Um, and so there is a sense to be reminded of uh, of you know there are ideals. There's a sense where God has his people, that the reason that we will wear white at the great wedding feast of the Lamb is not because we earned the white dress, but because no, of like, purity. Because as Luther says in Romans, we're clothed 
in the righteousness of Christ. Like second half of fifteen seventeen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You know, one of the things I do think in terms of, uh, you know, you, we both have spent time have you know being marred in you know in the mundane of church work. Uh, you know, one of the things I do think that's the helpful. first time I ever made a motion on the floor of an ecclesial body. Billboard was behind me and said, "Hey, let me help you clean this up." <laughs> <laughs> that was so fantastic. My, my, my first relationship with Scott was an intervention. Yeah, it was, like, <laughs> it was hey, a parliamentary yeah, intervention. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and then I think one of our second ecclesial meetings was like a, a fifth column. We were like, wow. I don't think we want to be a part of this. No, if, if this is our, if this is. That's why I knew I liked you. I was like, if Bill doesn't want to be a part of this, I don't either. <laughs> well, that that would be, that was the company of the righteous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. said, no, I don't think we're going to. I this, don't think it's going to work. This is going to work. This is. Uh, well, I remember being at, a, gosh, I have to, cla- I have to, I have to, uh, I've got to got to hide this a number of different ways. I, I was at a, a national religious gathering and I was representing a particular issue and they asked me to come into to the room with there was a group of people working for this issue and I walked in the room and I'm going, you know, I believed in what I was standing for, but after I was after I walked in the room to see who my allies were, I really had a I I'm really changed my views. <laughs> I had a crisis of conscience. I said maybe I'm I'm terribly wrong here. <laughs> so, so rather than visible invisible church, what if we went with something like uh like Joe Small says in his book, uh Fla- great title, great book, Flawed Church, Faithful God. Yeah, by the way, I would if you haven't listened to Scott's Give and Take interview with Joe Small, go back and listen it's to fantastic. it. It's fantastic. It's really good. He's I mean, a, Joe is... Somebody we both know, somebody yeah. we both respect a lot. Yeah, a very fine... I mean, like, We rag on mainline Protestantism a lot, and we're in it, so we can right. do that. But I feel like Joe is the best of... 
An institutional theologian. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really, yeah. a theologian's theologian. And, yeah. yeah, And he says, you know, he, let's talk about, like, rather invisible, invisible, let's talk about the, the tensions between the theological church, which can sometimes be ideal, and the actual church on the ground. And I think that's a, a more fruitful right. way to think about it. Like, there's the way we think about the church theologically, which which is God's revelation in Christ. Mm-hmm. And then also what it looks like when you're a sociologist or just in the pews. And, and both are true, just like Jesus is fully human, fully divine. I mean, these things are—the truth is in the contradictions. Yeah. I, well, one thing, like the whole uh, phrase, uh, look at Jesus, not the church, I mean, you're, you're, asked, you're, you're making a uh, proposal that Jesus would, would veto. Right. He, this is my bride. Yeah, this is, this is who, I, who I like. And, you know, one of the, the things I've used often in a sermon illustration or talk illustration that, you know, when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the boys, uh, that's like giving a Ferrari, a new Ferrari to a 16-year-old driver. Maybe a 12-year-old. Well, yeah, but uh, assume, we're assuming that at least the person's legal to drive. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah. But I mean, and so what did the church do with the keys of the kingdom? Well, immediately drove the car into a tree and or drove it into the Sea of Galilee. And, and the history of the church has been not being able to handle the keys, but that doesn't seem to be a problem with God. If we, if in, in terms at least of we accept the New Testament witness as being a, a faithful echo of the word, then um, God seemed to be okay about leaving the leaving His mission on earth, His His body, His physical presence, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we get to be the ones who are figuring that stuff out and acting it and and falling short and repenting and dishonoring God, but that's kind of his plan. And it doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be a plan B. <laughs> no. We're it. We are it. You I know, mean, I remember uh John King, who was a longtime uh young life area director. He used to teach at Eastern Con- I took a class. Did you take him with John? Yeah. So he was uh you know what the youth ministry? Yeah. Yeah. And was and and Presbyterian He used to do this thing they were a Jew, a Greek, or a Roman. Like thinking about the gospel, like what what is there? Like you had to find the person. When Paul says, you know, it's a stumbling block to Jews. So this is the Greeks. Were, he was like, who was the Jew, the Greek, and the Roman in your life? I thought that's the best practical outreach thing I've ever heard from yeah. the Bible. Like, yeah, King was amazing. Yeah, he's a good guy. I remember him one time saying that uh, every Christian hurts the reputation of Jesus. Yeah. And I think, and and so, I think sometimes we, you know, castigate the church, or you know, well, I'm I'm still following Christ, but I, I, you know, I'm not, I've given up on the church. Well, you know, you're not really a Christian if you've done that. Now, you may go through a season, and I understand people who've been burned. I understand, um, you know, I understand why it happens, but um, you know, I, I think for every person who I know has been seriously injured by the church, and I know a lot. There are about four or five who say they have been, which is just kind of an, their own excuse because they don't want to forgive well, others. I, I think part of it, too, is also— or like, do their own work, really, yeah. Like, you don't—so the beauty of the—if the invisible church is the transcendent church, right? Like, you don't get to it without the visible. Like, it's it's like Hegel says this thing in the, in the uh, preface to the phenomenology of the Geist. He says, the truth— 
is the whole. And then Adorno and it's like the the whole is a lie. Like right. but but Hegel's not saying that the truth is abstract. He's saying the the particular is the way you get to the truth, right? So right. so you there's no invisible church. There's no or the church triumphant, right? There's no church in the glory of the place of no more crying, no more dying without the place of being in the church with crying and dying. Like yeah, you, I, I kind of like, you know, I mean, I like the, the idea of the church militant, church triumphant. If, you know, and if if you really take the full sense of militant, not any kind of triumphal way, but the church is bloodied, you know, bloodied and in the trenches, which means, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity in the tension, trenches. There's a lot of losses. You know, it's not being militant is not triumphalistic at all. It means that you're in the midst of the struggle. I, I think that's probably a more helpful if you if you really parse out what militant could mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that too. You know, the the other thing is that um one of the reasons that uh we're, we're dying on the live show. <laughs> one of the things that I think is um you know, again, I think the stigma around Suicide is is unhelpful in so many ways. It's because families suffer enough when that happens, and the poor souls who do it are tormented enough. But one of the reasons it was a mortal sin was because, in in, in some levels, suicide was considered worse than murder, because murder you kill one person, suicide you're killing the world. Yeah, and you're I, rejecting kind of. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit about that in when you when you quit the church. You know, because you you basically are are somehow putting yourself in a place of judgment, saying that you know you know the rest of the body of Christ is not really worthy of your being part of it. And I, I and again I, that may be harsh words, but I do think there's a sense where that I don't we were not meant to do this alone. We weren't we weren't meant to be isolated individuals. Once you were not a people, now you are a people, and. I, it's kind of like a family. I mean, that's one of the things that, um, you know, having a large and growing family, you know, the struggles are very real. I mean, there are times when there are broken relationships within the family. There are times when, you know, one of the brothers may be on the outs with, uh, with some of the other brothers or all of them. Uh, there may be times in the past where, you know, one— John! <laughs> —seemed more— uh, more, uh, I don't know, just doing their own thing, okay? But the reality of it is... You, but you, do you have a favorite son? No, I don't. I think right now I do have a favorite son of the Boers. John's my favorite right now. All right, but that's that you're in a little different position. No, you know, it's, it's one of the great things about being a dad is you get to see kind of, you know, the beauty and wonder of all of them. Plus also, you also, you've got negative history. You got negative history with all of them too. Good golf club choices. I was going to say good golfer, but he, he chooses good clubs. Right. Great culinary palate. Just well, a great guy. Well, yeah. We, and we, my wife really enjoys him as a house guy. Well, she's re he's really the only one you know. Right. I mean, they could, hey, t here's to all the Borsons. If you want to compete for my love. <laughs> John's number one right now, though. Like, yeah. I, you know, unabashedly. Hashtag <laughs> John favorite boar. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, it's. He's my visible boar. But you know, it's the same thing in terms of you know, the, you know, you have different relationships with everybody, and at times those relationships are better than other times. Sometimes they're strained, but you never cease to be a family, and you no. never, and you don't quit on family. Yeah, 
And to me, that's probably, uh, you know, one of the, we're going circling back around the small church, but one of the, one of the advantages, and it's interesting, uh, Brother Fitch was kind of advocating for these family style, these community based models of church. Well, small churches for good or bad are, are family systems. Um, and, um, you, you know, you have one of the things that's really struck me because, you know, I'm working with two smaller churches now is that the depth of, of, um, the depth of care and love. Now, some of that's part of problematic because how does, how do you let new people into the family? That's a bit of a, you know, you, each church takes on their own kind of characteristics, just like families. Not, you know, not everybody would want to necessarily hang with the Boer family. And, and sometimes the, a small church is often shaped by shared being committed to being there, history, uh, perseverance, and sometimes that creates some dysfunction as well. But overall, I think there are if you can find ways that you can let people into that, uh, particularly when you know the refugee evangelical refugees or uh, people who were harmed by. You know, I, I have a lot of my career has been having a lot of, of hurt and angry Catholics in my in my parishes. I think these small family churches, if their heart can be big enough and if they can, you know, get out of their own way to, to do good work, I think those are, those are pretty powerful alternatives in this time. Yeah. I, I concur. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, uh, well, I'm preaching at a church that's on the, you know, it's, 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 small. Say, it's be at the small side. And I, uh, yeah, I'm, it, I feel like uh, it's been really great. Like, and I think, uh, I mean, don't quit on the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just don't quit on the church. I feel like it's. It, you're right. It's God's. It's not God's plan B. It's plan A. And also, uh, I'm continually surprised by what I see in the church. Yeah, I think the other thing too is is you you may have you may have been hurt by the church. You may be rejecting a compromised church. You may be bored with it. Um, but you know, I think we mentioned this. I don't know if it was, it was on a podcast or just a conversation. Uh, C.S. Lewis's hell for two hundred dollars a month, you can get Bill and I's phone conversations <laughs> unedited. If if you become a two hundred dollar a month Patreon sponsor, we will give you. Now, there's the scary thing. What if somebody does that? Well, there, but you'll have to sign confidentiality. Yeah, <laughs> non disclosure things. A non disclosure agreement. He signed a non disclosure. <laughs> But I, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't think hell is other people. I think hell is, is being by yourself uh, and being left to yourself. And so I do think there's a sense where um, there are times to heal, and I think you should not allow yourself to be put somewhere where you're hurt. I mean, the horror stories of people being marginalized by their churches, being rejected. You don't need to be part of those kind of churches. But I've been around plenty of churches that welcomed broken people and were open for a place to heal. So you, you should never be somewhere that continually that hurts you at all, but um, you shouldn't be by yourself. That's no, that's, that's not the answer. Yeah. God's will is not for anybody to be alone. Yep. And um, you know, um, and I think those of you who have, have the war stories of being hurt by the church can actually be very helpful in, in making it better. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah, have a safe weekend, folks. Thanks, friends. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, 
Thanks for listening, and God bless.